Yeah, it's been a long journey. It, I think a lot of people who just have really become aware in the last three years about the vaccine uh, risk and failure issue, which is surround, is certainly focused on code, the COVID-19 vaccines, don't realize that there is a 40-year history, almost a 40-year history, behind uh, the conversation that we're having today all around the world, but certainly in this country. I was looking uh, today, the, uh, Politico had, had a, an article, the anti-vaccine movement is on the rise. The White House is at a loss about what to do about it. Well, you know, it was in 1982 when I joined with other parents of DPT vaccine injured children, and we established the nonprofit charity known today as the National Vaccine Information Center. Uh, my son had had a reaction, a severe reaction to the whole cell pertussis vaccine and DPT shots in 1980. And I watched him regress before my eyes, physically, mentally, and emotionally, after he had that reaction. And I didn't know what had happened. I didn't understand what had happened to him. And it wasn't until I saw the TV do television documentary, DPT Vaccine Roulette, which was broadcast out of Washington, D.C., in April of 1982, which was the first time that American parents had been informed that a routine childhood vaccine could brain injure and kill. And I stood in my kitchen and I I was I was transfixed because the children they were showing on that documentary were catastrophically brain injured or had died. My son was was had had a reaction that they described but he did not go into a profound mental retardation. He obviously didn't die. He had what was eventually diagnosed as minimal brain damage, multiple learning disabilities, attention deficit disorder that was so severe that he had to stay in a special education classroom throughout his public school education. So when I joined with other parents back in April of 1982, what did we want? Well, first of all, we wanted Congress to investigate why was this kind of a reactive vaccine still on the market. Why, why had it not been improved for like 40, 50 years? Uh, and so we were very much up on Capitol Hill. What do the drug companies do? They said, you know what? All this publicity, we're going to have more lawsuits against us. So Congress, you better completely shield us from all liability for vaccine issues and deaths or we're going to stop supplying this country with childhood vaccines. So Congress said, we've got to protect the vaccine supply. And they came to us and said, do you want to come to the table? We're going to have legislation that's going to protect the vaccine supply. Do you want to come to the table and work with us? Or do you not want to come to the table? Because if you don't want to come to the table, we're going to pass it without you. So we came to the table. And we worked for almost three and a half, four years with all the stakeholders and companies, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the state and territorial health officers, the, the, the federal agencies. At the end of the day, the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act of 1986 was passed by Congress. The first law on the books in this country that acknowledged that vaccines can injure and kill. It was a huge historic law and we got safety provisions in that law including the Vaccine Average Event Reporting System, known as VAERS, which has played a big role in what happened in the last three years with COVID-19 vaccines. 
because since that 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 uh, uh, since that program became operational in 1990 and was able to take in average event reports on all vaccines from parents, from people who had been adults who had been vaccinated, as well as doctors, the COVID vaccine has logged in over 1.5 million adverse events, over half, more than half of all the adverse events ever been reported to VAERS since 1990. So because we got that VAERS system into that law as a safety provision, we've been able to look at what has been happening on these reports to the government on COVID vaccine uh, reactions. But, you know, there were other safety provisions we got in there too, including the fact that you have to have, when you go into a doctor's office, they have to provide you with a sheet of information before you're vaccinated or your child is vaccinated that tells you about the vaccine, about the disease. Now, not every doctor does it. Why? Because there were no penalties put into the law for not doing it. We also got the reporting requirement. Again, no penalties are put in the law. So less than 1% of all doctors actually report adverse reactions to theirs. So the law also set up a compensation program, a federal compensation program that was an alternative to a lawsuit, not instead of a lawsuit. And that's a big myth that a lot of people don't understand about that law. When it was passed, the companies were still liable for design defect. That means if, if they could have made a safer vaccine, if there was evidence they could have done that, you could still sue them. On, you could still sue them for design defects. The law that was passed in November of 1986 and signed by President Reagan is not the law in existence today. Why? Because after it was passed, we now know we were betrayed. We were used. After it was passed, all the people who had passed it, obviously they, in my opinion, they had a deal before it was passed. And that was, they were gonna go in after it was passed and gut it. And that's exactly what they did. The pharmaceutical companies, the medical trade organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics, American Medical Association, the government health agencies, went in and gutted that law systematically over a period of 10 years and they weakened the safety provisions and they gave the doctors liability protection, which they did not have when that law was passed in 86. We never agreed to that. And in 2011, the US Supreme Court put the final nail in that car. And what they did is they, they bowed to the pressure from the pharmaceutical industry, the government agencies and the, uh, quote, medical trade organizations and public health organizations. We had a, an amicus brief. We filed an amicus brief in there on behalf of vaccine injured people. But, the, but what happened was the court sided with the institutions. And they said, ignoring the legislative history, said, well, Congress really meant to have no liability for these companies. That's absolutely not true. Because after that law was passed, the companies kept going up to Congress, begging them to please, please give them design defect protection from lawsuits. And they didn't get it until the Supreme Court in 2011 said, no more lawsuits. Huge betrayal of the public trust, huge betrayal of people who go to get vaccinated. And, you know, it breaks my heart 
Now, there is one way you can sue, and that's if you can prove criminal fraud, uh, criminal fraud, that is, the companies withheld information from the FDA, lied about information. Uh, you know, if we still have the design defect liability in effect that Supreme Court took away in 2011, these mRNA vaccines could definitely, these companies could be sued for design defect. Because the way that vaccine is made, the mRNA technology used, is completely different. And, and, and you know, I, I call it a cell disruptor biological. It is not a vaccine in the traditional sense. It basically, you know, manipulates cells, genetic program cells to, to produce a synthetic uh, spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and turn your body into a vaccine manufacturing plant. Uh, so it's not the same as the vaccines that certainly were covered. I mean, back in back in the early 80s, there were only seven vaccines being given to children. Diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, uh, polio, oral polio, and measles, mumps, and rubella. And, and the thing that our organization did was what we fought for 14 years and got a safer, less reactive pertussis vaccine called DTAP for the, for the babies. Uh, which causes fewer reactions. Now it doesn't, it's not completely uh, safe. I mean, you still can have brain inflammation. You can still have brain damage. You can still die, but it's a, it, it, it is a way, uh, it happens less frequently with DTAP. We had to work for 14 years. They, we were stonewalled. They tried everything because you see the old vaccine, the whole cell pertussis vaccine cost pennies to produce. And the, and the, and the uh, acellular, purified acellular cost, I think a dollar. And they they just didn't want to do it. <laughs> so, you know, today it's a $200 billion uh, global vaccine market for these multinational uh, vaccine manufacturers. And up from, I think, $37 billion in 2017. That's, it's, it's completely changed everything, the COVID vaccine, uh, what happened with COVID. And, and, you know, this whole issue of, oh, we've got all this anti-vaccine movement. First of all, we've never been, a, we have never said there should be no vaccines. We have always said, supported the informed consent principle. That is that you have the human right to be fully informed about the benefits and risks of a medical intervention, including a pharmaceutical product like a vaccine, and be able to make an informed and voluntary decision without being coerced or punished for the decision you, you make for yourself or your minor child. That is a completely reasonable position. And yet this pejorative anti-vaxxer label that has actually become almost like you're, you're, you're categorized as, as a, an extremist. Uh, some people use the word hate, a domestic threat actor. Uh, it, it's, it's become just a completely insane. <laughs> 